Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that wants to remind you, no matter how many superstars you send to the Browns, they will still be the Browns. Yeah, guns close doors to the system, yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them, we're solid and we don't need to kick them, this is no self-peace from Hi, welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eris and Katya. What's up? Hey there. And we have a special guest today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Brian Lindstrom. I'm running for city council in Aurora in Ward 6. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Brian. Can you talk to us a little bit about Ward 6? Can you tell us like the boundaries and where it is and stuff like that? Yeah. So right now, Ward 6, so it's all of the Southlands area, so the most southern part of Aurora. Then uh, the way they've annexed Aurora over the the years, it hops over Centennial into the part of Aurora that's south of Hamden and east of Chambers. And that's the area as it is now, but they redraw districts in years that end in three and nine, which also happen to be election years. (laughs) Um, So it's looking like they're going to move it slightly more east. So up into so wait, Buckley. So you get elected, and then they immediately change your district. No, actually, the so the the district will happen six. The change will happen six months before the election. So you may not even end up being in the district you're running for. There or is well, that a possibility sometimes. So, so that that was it was a fifty fifty toss up about a year ago. I was one of the things I was testifying is the fact that they can change districts six months. Be- not just can they, they have to change it six months before the election and how that inherently benefits an incumbent. But the what they drew, the districts the way they are, the way they're changing it to now is actually going to touch on my precinct. They, they released the maps um, end of November and I announced two or three weeks later. Cause, so you waited to see? Yeah, because there was a chance of me. I mean, it, I could have easily moved into Ward 5. That's funny. It doesn't give you a lot of time to uh, prepare for your campaign <laughs> when you have to wait that long to announce and no, make decisions. I don't, I don't. Yeah, and it, it could have – I mean, it's not finalized either. And so it won't get finalized until this – until April, and it could be as late as May that they could finalize So when it. the election is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I announced so early is, is because if they – you know, they, they drew the maps – the maps are based on a group, so they they base it. They have to have it between five and ten percent the same from the smallest district to the largest district. The disparity in the amount of people has to be less than ten percent. So what they drew now, that's what it is. So for them to change that after I'm in the race would be pretty pretty sketchy. Yeah, yeah, or iffy. Well, and I asked because I know you said before we started that you live near the edge of your district Mm -hmm. so yeah if they drew you out that that would suck yeah and um one of the talking points when they were discussing this last not last meeting but the the study session before was the person in my in my ward is wanting to to have more people leave the ward which if they're it would only take a couple more thousand they'd want to push out and and my precinct would go so (laughs) that's um, good so if that that narrative gets pushed hard enough it's it's still possible that i could get moved out so what do you do for your day job 
So I'm a teacher. I teach at Hinkley High School um, Excellent. in North Aurora. Um, I've been there four years, and then I'm on the board of directors for Aurora Education Association. What do you teach? I teach social studies. So I'm the department chair for social studies. I teach geography. I teach psychology, and I teach IB history. And what do you like about it, and what do you hate about it? Oh, what I like? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. I, I love the students. Uh, I've taught I've taught many different subjects. I've taught English. I've taught PE. At the end of the day, I don't. I mean, I care, but I don't really care what I'm teaching. It's about the students and the interactions I I have. I I teach for the moments that aren't planned, where students where you have real conversations and you can have real impacts on students. Um, what do I hate? I hate the evaluation system. I'm sure. <laughs> I hate, I hate, basically, long story short, uh, the hoops you have to jump through being a teacher. Well, I'm glad you're talking about it because I want to talk about educational stuff, and I know Eris is really good on educational stuff. Because you mentioned Hinkley, I have to just want to get the elephant out of the room first. The principal shooting, obviously your principal. Vice principal. Vice principal. Yeah. Um, oh, that was tragedy. Definitely a tragedy. How does it affect how you approach teaching? And also, how do you think it changes people's perception of the high school when it's already been one that historically has been negatively viewed? Well, first of all, TJ was the head of social studies, so him and I worked very closely together. Condolences. Oh, Thank you. Sorry. No, he was a he was a friend of mine. It was it was a big impact, not just on myself, but the whole school, because he was a dean, then he was a TOSA, which is a teacher on special assignment. Um, and then he was a vice principal. So he's he's been in so many different roles that he carried that, you know, his dean hat up with him through through the through the ranks. So our most impacted students, our toughest students were the ones he had a really good relationship with. So it, it really hit us hard. If you would if you had walked into school the Tuesday we came back, you would see, see nothing was really happening because it just it hit the whole school. Um, and I'm sorry, can you, can you, I was so focused on that. Give me the follow-up question you, you asked after. Um, no, totally just fine. how, yeah, completely understandable. Um, but then just how has this press coverage affected the school and how has it, you know, affected your feelings towards the school as well and all that fun stuff? I don't, I don't think it's changed my feelings about the school, you know, so to get give a little bit of background, I, it, almost exactly a year before we lost another dean, and TJ's a a strong, well, I guess was a, a strong black male in our schools, which is desperately needed in a in a school as diverse as ours. We lost another strong black male the year before, and I guess the the way I viewed things differently was the way they handled it when we lost uh, our dean the year before the the way they went about handling it wasn't ideal i think they learned and grew from that as opposed to just pretending like it didn't happen this year they they acknowledged it and they gave us a half day the following monday so we could go gotcha. to the services which uh, was de- desperately needed i'm i'm unaware of the previous dean what happened there I'm, you know, uh, I'm talking about it so um is uh, mr swift he was our basketball uh, female basketball coach and he died of a heart attack oh. a year a year prior. God, um, a plethora of tragedies at your school. Yeah, the, this year has been has been probably the toughest year I've been teaching because so in January our principal uh, resigned. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. 
So we we gained an interim. Our our one of our vice principals became interim principal, and then three weeks later, TJ happened um, that event. So we went from having five um, administrators down to three in wow. pretty small window, and It'd be hard to manage the school at that point too. Huh? Yeah, no. um, and you know you have the 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 tragedy side, but you also, you have the logistics side, but also just the sheer mental side you know like i so my my evaluator was our principal then it became our interim principal and just through all the shuffles i'm on my third evaluator of the year so you have that and just the stresses of the hoops you already have to jump through now you have to navigate those with with a third person so there there's a lot of nuances in there and and your follow-up again was the the education as a whole or specifically the view of Hinckley. Yeah. Honestly, I think the, the big focus that I've seen has been less on the school. I mean, there, there was a focus on, on TJ, there was a focus on Hinckley, but I think it quickly shifted to being another conversation about guns. Um, Well, and I was thinking I want to bring this up later when we talk about Erpo, because we want to talk about all of that sort of stuff. So I think it fits right in, actually. Um, so maybe we'll move past this, past this a little bit right mm-hmm. now and go towards just what are your plans for improving education, maybe problems you see in – you work in the Aurora Public Schools, right? Yes. So problems you see in Aurora Public Schools, maybe Cherry Creek Schools, because I know they're near there too. Like do you, what issues do you see? Which ones are in your district, actually? Let's ask. Well, that's a very big, deep question because I think when you, well, I think when you because my district is is in the Cherry Creek School District, I teach in Aurora Public School District, and and a, a study came out two or three weeks ago that says uh, white schools get thirty three billion more than than uh, their counterparts around the country. Yeah. So when you're comparing comparing those two things, how do you solve education issues? It makes it a very big question because here in Colorado, you know, we have Tabor, which and Gallagher, which is another big conversation around that because, you know, Cherry Creek, Boulder Valley, they can, they have the availability to pass mills and larger mills um, quite often versus, you know, it was Brighton passed their first mill in like 15 years. And yeah, I heard about that. And I um, think, you're saying like Denver, I think passes them every year. They they do, and then but they're they're the biggest school district in the in the state. So when yeah. you look at their total, it sounds bigger, but when you actually break it down, it's not as impactful as it can be in in some of the other school districts. How do you see the impact from the ones out in Aurora? Um, so we we did pass one this year, which is great. I think the the biggest thing we were going after is obviously to keep and retain teachers. But mental health, um, a huge part of our mill levy was about putting a mental health provider in every building, um, which I think is huge. I think it connects the, the two things um, we already mentioned, which is um, the guns, the violence, and, and education. Absolutely. Um, particularly in schools like Hinkley, there's a lot of research behind urban education and the combinations of post-traumatic stress, you know, systematic racism, and and that long term trauma that they go through, they we need more of that in in schools like ours, which will take us back to Erpo, <laughs> eventually. Yeah, I mean, do you guys want to move on? <laughs> like, 
No, but I, I'm well, actually I'm no, actually fascinated um, by what you're saying. Yeah. Keep going. Well, I yeah. can I could talk about education all day because I I have been in it. Um, <laughs> Eris, Brian, go for it. Well, well, I think it depends on on what route we want to go. If we wanted to talk about it at a, at a state level, we could talk about which it's coming on um, in a couple of weeks. The the evaluation system mm-hmm. readdressing SB ten one ninety one. They're talking about transitioning to having teachers have, who've been effectively rated to not have to be evaluated every single year, mm-hmm. which to go back to our resource, the, the conversation around resources, I mean, to not have to evaluate. So we have 2000 students, we have 150 teachers not having to evaluate every single one every single year allows you to focus more on the teachers who need extra help and to use those resources more wisely. So that that's one at the, the state level we can address. At the city level, I, I see. Yeah. So well, I wanted to jump in. More, more, more just um, because the way I think about it is when you don't have teachers being evaluated every year, yes, it's a benefit for one, you can focus on teachers who need more help, but it also puts some teachers at a disadvantage because some teachers are not going to be evaluated fairly, well, favorably if they're in tougher situations and have to deal with tougher students. Well, I think about like the difference between charter schools and regular schools where charter schools don't have to take like special ed kids or anything like that. Like they make it evaluated differently because they don't necessarily have children that struggle. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't. I am happy to go down the the rabbit hole of talking (laughs) about charter schools. Let's not go down that rabbit hole today. Um, I'm, uh, I'm happy to, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, well, the model around private schools and charter schools is they, they cannot possibly service all students. Yeah nor do they want to. It's not financially beneficial, but it, it leaves the, the public school having um, a disproportional amount of those students, and it drives drives up the cost per pupil. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I could, <laughs> I could, <laughs> we, we can go down that route. But if we want to talk about specifically at the city level what we can address, something I want to address, and, and luckily I have great relationships with some other people running, so I think if we can manage to get – majority across the finish line we can get this to occur which um i have great relationships with with aurora public school board i wanted i want to create an intergovernmental agreement to make cca free because right now you can if you're a student in aurora public schools each credit's only 70 dollars for somebody who's not in aurora public schools it's hundreds of dollars i think we Mm -hmm. can open the door to to allow that same thing for just everybody who lives in aurora Mm -hmm. i think that makes if you're an aurora resident you just get it yeah makes sense no it does i mean help educate your local population at a better cost it would i but we also don't fund higher education (laughs) in the state so you also have the stranglehold of what is economically feasible for the school because they do need to generate some revenue yeah and then what would be beneficial for the populace as a whole and it, it yeah well it, and one of the i one of the revenue streams I, w- I would like to create is do you guys know what next light is out of longmont so so longmont created long story short they they created a public option for broadband internet okay. well, that's actually another topic i wanted to talk to you about oh. anyway so yeah so well well that's that's one of the revenue streams I think we could create is by by opening up that door to have a broadband internet that we created and we've built out. We can not only have faster and cheaper internet, but we if we create an enterprise, we can use that as a funding 
source without having to increase taxes. Which, that, that's everybody's favorite thing, right? Like, yeah. How can we not increase taxes? <laughs> yeah, I, I think an, an enterprise model is a great way to do that because we're we're paying for these services anyway. Mm. So why not use them to fund things as opposed to just going to some big corporation? Yeah. So did you just get up in the morning one day and say, I'm going to run for office? Or <laughs> No. How did this happen? So the, this is a, a long time coming. So I've I've always been involved and interested in politics but more on a philosophical level um Mm -hmm. time i was 16 you know all through college arguing with people in the library things like that but the thing that really turned the corner was and i hear this from tons of other people was the 2016 election (laughs) realizing that i i just i'm not doing enough i joined literally everything i joined the young democrats i ran for the board seat on the union I started going mm. to city council meetings and that's that's when when I really it really clicked cuz about a year year and a half ago was my first city council meeting and I see this group called Denver Meadows testifying to keep their home and this is this has been a 3 year process mm-hmm. but Denver Meadows is a trailer park in Aurora Where is it located? It's it's uh I don't have the exact address, but like it's it's in North Aurora. Oh, I think I know where it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't <laughs> I can't think of the the cross streets right now. But it, it it's many of those kids who live there go yeah. to Hinkley and they go to Central High School. So I look over and I, who the person I see testifying is a parent of one of my students. Mm-hmm. So it really clicked that like the these the city politics has a direct impact on what I do every day because mm-hmm. we we walk into school and we want to educate students but you know they they're tired from not having a place to sleep or having to work full time and housing is such a huge huge impact on education that I, that was just all right I need to do more so for about a year I was I was just going to city council meetings testifying I, you know I met with the city council mm-hmm. emails text messages you know all those things to try and you know, make an impact, but I saw quickly that my city council member was not caring about the same things that I care about. So I decided that I needed to run and and take their seat. Hope that answers your question, but yeah. No, that sounds like a great reason to run for office, honestly. Uh, Well, speaking of running for office, I want to talk about something else in Aurora that's going on. Uh, A former congressman is running for mayor. Uh, what have you heard about it? Like, does he look like you have a chance? Like, we, we don't really know much over here. Well, so. I mean, it, it's easy to say he has a chance. He he has name recognition, and he's walking into a race with three hundred thousand dollars in a war chest. Yeah. So, does he have a chance? I mean, money money plays a big role he's in the politics. Really bitchy publicist too my god yeah no he has i'll just calling out people's publicists well he has yeah like (laughs) his team is his team is you know one really they're really good at what they do but being a nonpartisan race is makes it interesting because that's a good point it's nonpartisan well as my good friend well as my good friend likes to say uh kristen mallory westerberg always says Nonpartisan races produce partisan results, so we're we're able to have a council who can, you know, pretend to be one way one day, and, and you know, if you look through their voting record, they're 
they're, they're hardcore conservative, but then they they're running as a Democrat right now. Um, I guess but that's fair, answer, yeah. yeah, but to answer your question, yes, he has a chance. But but there's Mike Kaufman, there's Ryan Frazier, who's also a Ryan Frazier. That's the guy I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh. Who's also, or at least was a Republican. He might be an independent. I haven't looked. Which is the common theme of this election: Republicans switching to independent for the election year. Um, <laughs> Marsha Bergen's just announced. Um, she's currently sits in Ward Three, also a Republican. Rini Peterson, I think she's an independent, formal former city council person, and then uh, my personal favorite, Omar Montgomery, mm-hmm. who I absolutely support. And did Omar run before? No, no. I feel like um, he ran for something before, didn't he? Tom, he sits on one of the city committees. Okay. Um, I can't think of which one. But, I mean, I can't think of a better person to run than, than Omar. So, okay. definitely the person I'm supporting. But, I That's yeah, I think we fired Mike Kaufman once. <laughs> uh, I don't think we <laughs> want to reject the, him again. <laughs> we, we would rather just not hire him again well that's what i was gonna say earlier is you said he has a good team around him and they're strong and i was like well it didn't work out that well last year <laughs> yeah yeah um, but th- but that's the tough thing is people specifically democrats don't turn out in odd number of years so it might be good you know they're it might excite the people who wouldn't normally turn out in an odd number of year to be like i want to beat mike kaufman again <laughs> But we have to turn out, we have to donate, we have to walk because, again, he has a good team and he has $300,000 walking into the race, which which our previous mayor, Steve Hogan, throughout his entire tenure only raised 150000 So these are not like traditionally... Double. Yeah, yeah, these are not traditionally expensive races. City council is usually between fifteen and 25000 Well, it's not a full-time position, right? Well... No, full-time work, <laughs> but not full-time yeah, No, uh, the mayor pays 80000 and the city council pays eighteen and change. So it's it definitely... It's quite the discrepancy. Yeah. Well, and it, the interesting thing is, you know, we're, we're such a big city, but we only have part-time pay who who can afford to, to do that job people who are rich or retired typically yeah well and that's the richard Pryor joke right like who's gonna spend six hundred thousand dollars on a job that pays 80 and <laughs> <laughs> you i always get suspicious when those things happen oh, yeah. especially because that discrepancy is like well then what do you actually provide that's the benefit i mean i would love to see you take hey this war chest three hundred thousand Hundred thousand is going to this homeless shelter in Aurora. Or <laughs> well, I can tell you, I can tell you why though. So Aurora has no ethics laws. There's no conflict of interest. So I can tell you that. So you can, you can, and and they do. They do vote in ways that benefit them financially. They're they're. It made the Sentinel about two or three months ago that one of the city council members advertises on his website that he can help get contracts. And there's nothing they can do about it because we have no conflict <laughs> of interest laws. And Nicole Johnson tried to run an ethics ordinance, and one of the other city council members, Charlie Richardson, took her ordinance, ran red lines through through all the things that gave it teeth, and tried to run it as his oh. own. Which that's what I mean by the nonpartisan produces partisan results. He is now trying to come off as the the moderate Democrat, even though he's he's done these things. That's so, are you sitting here and literally telling me that 
any official in the city of Aurora that's not state level or something like that, but just city of Aurora. Yeah, the, is, the city council is able to take bribes or whatever. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, mean, necess- saying- I wouldn't necessarily use that word because you're saying this dude um, advertised on his website <coughs> that he can get you a state contract. That's a fucking bribe. Like, well, I think I think the even word Chihuahua bribe, doesn't do that. I think yeah. I think the word bribe implies illegal, though, right? There's no conflict of interest <coughs> ordinance. So, yeah, but I mean. Potato, potato, like it's well, the it's same not, fucking thing. Like, but I think it's not necessarily in a way where it's like, here's, you know, here's money, go get me a, a contract. It's more of, I'm, I, they can be a contractor themselves mm-hmm. and broker deals, mm-hmm. and that can be a role they can play. At the state level, you can't do that. I mean, um, it's a you, conflict of interest. You can call it whatever you want, but if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, I'm gonna call it a fucking duck, like. <laughs> Indeed. No. Yeah. No. I. This is absolutely insane. Which person is this? Uh, If you look up the Sentinel and Bob Roth, you can find an. Oh yeah, I believe it. Cool. Let's call him out. I love it. Well, the Sentinel. uh, I think it was Grant Grant Stringer. I could be wrong, but I think he's the one who who followed up on that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. We you know we have no conflict of interest. We have no campaign finance laws. You can. If you could afford it, you can write me a check for a hundred thousand dollars right now and get me in. And there's nothing to stop it because we have no limits. Wow. Which, I by mean, the I, by the way, do you have? 000? I, I was gonna say, I'm sorry, I don't. Like, <laughs> if I did, I, I'd be using it for myself. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. I would be using it to move to Aurora, yeah, so I could then like, run well, for office. And the and, and the uh, twenty campaign. and the 2017 election, um, oil and gas did drop 150 thousand. They'd split it between some of the candidates. It was just too little, too late to beat. Our three badasses, but yeah, but it but shit, yeah. Yeah, oh, it, it's definitely indeed. Gonna, yeah, and, and those. I mean, there are issues that are partisan, but that, in my mind, I think Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. You you don't think pe- public officials should yeah. be making money off of off sitting in, like in power? That, yeah. Yeah. Besides what they get paid for the position, but yeah, that, which yeah. which I, again I think should be more mm-hmm. um if we could find a way to make it more because it does incentivize people to only do it if it's beneficial because if you only no. make eighteen thousand dollars for a full-time job it's not really worth it yeah, yeah. That's um, poverty level like, <laughs> yeah which i mean the the people on our side all work full-time jobs there are there are others who work, work full-time jobs mm-hmm. but That's there's great. retired people as well because okay they're, they're the ones who can afford it well let's uh Let's move off of this because that's fucking crazy. Um, yeah, that was uh, one more like so Aurora again. This is what y'all do. <laughs> this is what y'all do. Uh, right. Adams County has cleaned up his act. Though. Yeah, better than that. No. Yeah. Well, okay. We do, we're like I said, I'm I have good relationships with a lot of people running, and we're happy to change <laughs> this. I think the do ethics <laughs> ethics laws is one of the first things I think we'd be happy to happy to fix so yeah. if this is an issue for you and you were listening and you are registering in aurora uh, maybe vote for the people who said no to bribery yeah <laughs> let's go with that <laughs> okay let's move uh we're gonna go to the extreme risk protection order or erpo the aka red flag bill uh, i know you discussed a little bit earlier about an incident that relates to you with this and um i just want to go over quickly first sort of uh the idea of the bill what it lays out some of what it's requiring and stuff. Uh, it states that a family member, a household member, or a sheriff can submit an affidavit to a court. It's either county or district, 
they introduce the order and the individual they present the affidavit and they make their case to the court the individual is requested then to surrender their firearms because they're deemed a danger to themselves or others the legal standards here are it's established by preponderance of the evidence they decide that you know more likely than not preponderance of the evidence is that 50.1 percent more likely than not that somebody is a danger and that they need to have their weapons taken away and if the sheriff puts it forward the sheriff is then issued a search warrant which i want to go into that more a little bit later about rights of warrants and stuff like that especially predicated on things that haven't happened yet i think i'm probably getting a little ahead of myself here we could probably stop talking about a little bit but i want to ask you first i mean you brought up this incident do you think this is a rule that could have prevented that from happening maybe i don't know (laughs) okay um because I, I, you don't know the individual. No, I don't. I don't know the individual. I yeah. don't know if the the gun was legally purchased. I don't know okay. any of those details to know. Okay. Well, all right. Then we'll we'll not worry about that part. Then let me worry about uh, first the establishment of someone's <clears throat> right to possess a weapon is a constitutional right, Second Amendment. After that, we look at how we take those rights away, and what we're saying here is. For me, this is the first proactive measure that I've seen to take someone's gun away before they've done something. I know we were talking about before, like the whole minority report idea and stuff like that. Yeah, you're you're putting a standard here that's a civil standard towards a constitutional amendment. I mean, I I foresee challenges left and right. I mean, it's going to happen anyway. What else do we see that can happen with this? Like, what other abuses are there that are possible? I know. Well, I mean, one of the things that when we were doing show prep that we talked about for me is the concept of who is labeled dangerous. You know, historically in our society, we look at people who are black and brown, and we already have issues where they are already persecuted without cause. And this is another tool that can be manipulated to skirt the justice system and you know skirt how we think about what gun ownership looks like and who's allowed to have them i mean i even read in part of this it said that the threat or the reason for taking the gun away doesn't even necessarily have to involve the the person having or using a weapon like i mean not even i don't even have to threaten someone with using a weapon against them but they say that i'm dangerous and they can in some way prove to a court that they think I'm dangerous, then they could take my gun away. Yeah. No, I think of like the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, right? At one yeah. point considered the biggest threat to American society. And one of the things that um, they were very proponents of is arm yourself, right? Black yeah. Panthers were like, arm oh. yourself. And so you get all of these different instances where those people were not actively going out and using the guns to create any mischief or any mayhem, but they were labeled as dangerous for simply owning them. Yeah, where was the NRA then? Well, that, that's they, they actually supported the assault weapon ban because of that. Ronald, that's why Ronald Reagan yep. Yep. had the, the assault weapon ban in California when he was governor. Because Panthers started carrying weapons yeah. around. They're like, well, we can't have this. Like, yeah. So, But, yeah, so, I mean, those are issues. That we, uh, I think we all look at gun safety and not wanting guns to be used improperly. But at the same time, we have to think of the slippery slope that you – build when you start establishing these things and then we also just went into the financing of it lawyers are expensive (laughs) there's a lot of them but they're still expensive (laughs) and you're being basically 
you're having your rights challenged and you have to go to court and fight against this even though you haven't even done anything yet necessarily exactly like you haven't committed a crime you haven't done anything illegal essentially yeah. but they can come take your rights away Said Aris point out some very uh, poignant questions I also worry about what is the standard of mental health this HIPAA HIPAA is a very to me a very sacred document and when you stop and I don't know Saeed you're the only lawyer here but you're not a lawyer right no, no. okay <laughs> um, but how do we define men- mental health and will this will this create will this stop people from seeking help with their depression or help with their if help with their anxiety um, mm-hmm. because they think they'll get stuff taken away from them mm-hmm. and I think that's very dangerous quite frankly yeah, no, I mean, it does set a precedent where people might be less than honest with their mental health provider, their health care yes. providers. Doctors. It does have this way of, you know, giving a negative uh, view of mental health treatment. And like Brian said, you know, like, okay, when you're growing up in the Latino community or, you're, or I don't know much about the black community, but you're growing up in the Latino community, there's no such thing as mental health. There's either you're lazy <coughs> or you're okay, you know? Um, nobody wants to talk about mental health. So we're just finally getting to the point where people are talking about it. I think this would be a huge five steps back for the Latino community because now they're going to talk about mental health and just kind of destroyed all of the work, work we've made in the last 10 years to get people to talk openly about that mental health does not equal crazy. Well, and I, I want to agree with you here because, I mean, the third factor that judges could take into account and in whether to take away a weapon is any relevant mental health issues of the respondent or the yeah, person they're going mean? against. What does that mean? Like, what, just somebody maybe, like we're talking about, maybe has like Asperger's or is on the spectrum or something like that. Does that mean that they can't have a weapon now? Or or did you break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend or at it, at what level? Upset at some point. Yeah. yeah. Or, of course, there's the whole, uh, we have higher rates of burnout than we have historically had. So is it just that somebody is going through a period of burnout, um, which we all operate with some function of, and is that considered cause enough on your mental health as yeah. something you can <laughs> take away a weapon for? Mm. Well, and how long is the the waiting period to get your weapon back? Well, and so I want to go into that next. Thank you for bringing that up because I want to go into sort of the process of taking the weapon away because I want to talk – first we talked about the standards. Now I want to talk about the process. It's It starts with a hearing. So what happens is when a sheriff, family member, household member, somebody like that puts forward a petition either that day or by the next day, so I'd say within 24 hours, you have to have the hearing. However – that is nowhere near enough time to give notice to the respondent or the person you're trying to take the weapons away from. So you're going to have this hearing within 24 hours, which I'm going to just assume is ex parte, which means the other party's not there. And you're going to decide there based on one party's opinion that you're going to take this weapon away. Now for a safeguard for that, I think for them, what they did is you have to have a follow-up hearing within seven days in order for that person to be served and to show up. But I don't know if any of you have ever had the sheriff serve something for you. Seven days is kind of quick. Like, it's really hard for them to get that. Well, also, like, just serving and showing up. Seven days. How hard is – how easy is it to get a lawyer and vet a lawyer that's get a competent? Lawyer, <laughs> time off of work, do whatever you need yeah. to do in order to show up in court. It's a very short period of time. So they do allow for one more set over within another seven days as long as you sh- can show cause 
of trying to get service to the person and you're still trying to do that. But generally by then you would have already taken their weapons away so they would know. So at that point, once you have the seven day hearing, the judge determines at that hearing whether they want to put forward the order for 182 days. And then at that 182 days, at the end, towards the end of that, the petitioner can move forward again to extend it for another year. But now during that 182 days, the respondent only has one opportunity to try and put forward a petition to get their weapons back. And at that hearing, I will admit that the burden of evidence is still, or burden of proof is still on the petitioner or the person who brought forward the case. So that's kind of the process that you go through here. And then essentially you get 189 days plus the one year is about as long as this can go unless you keep renewing after yearly. And at that point, they just sort of probably prevent you from ever owning weapons. Even then, we were talking about just getting the guns back themselves if you tend to wait yeah. the whole period of time. Um, I think we mentioned well, that they have to go through the background check again, yes. which there's a cost associated with. Yes. And then they have the right to dispose of the weapons within a certain period of time afterwards. Yeah. So if you petition to get your weapons back and you're allowed to get your weapons back at any point, you have to pay for the... I don't necessarily know if you have to pay, but there's supposed to be a background check just like anybody else purchasing a weapon to receive the weapon back. And, I mean, there's questions about that because, I mean, did they take it properly before? And then what happened? Like, why are they running through this thing again if it's already been cleared by the court? Whatever. You have to do the background check to get your weapons back. And if you don't do it within a year, they'll destroy your weapons. That seems harsh. I mean, sometimes, you know, people might be in jail for something else for a year and they lose their weapons because of this or something like that, you know? Brian, do you have any opinions? Um, it's a lot. I know. Yeah, it's a lot. No. Yeah. Well, and you I, haven't even seen the bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the, like, that this type of thing ex- exists in other states, right? Um, so I think just this year alone, they had somewhere like seven or eight other states jump on. And previous to that, there was like four or five that had it or something like that. So it's still, I believe, a relatively new concept. And I don't believe it's been vetted through the courts just quite yet. So. Yeah, well, and it's tough. I think this whole conversation around guns is bigger than just... Guns are obviously part of the equation, and I think it's silly when people remove it from the equation, but I think there's other things as well, like mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're using mental health as a tool to take someone's guns away, I think we need to first acknowledge the fact that we don't have enough mental health structures to get people serviced to begin with. I mean, you spoke um, earlier about the schools just trying to get some in there to help yeah. the students and stuff. So. Yeah. Which we, is, I applaud you guys for doing is an excellent idea. But that's just one in a building with 2,000 students. Drop in the bucket. Enough, yeah. Right? Yeah. But still, but, a drop I mean, in bucket is a start. Yes. Stuff, yes. Yeah. It's all a start. So I, I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a, in a general big picture thing, we need to address mental health and i think this leads down a conversation to like medicare for all right Mm -hmm. because quite possibly because if we if we aren't addressing people's mental health i don't i don't see how this can even be an effective tool i'm not opposed to the tool outright of the red flag bill the 182 days part is the part that really stands out to me Mm -hmm. because I i would think there'd be a much smaller tier of you know, there there's a thirty days. There's you yeah. know. sort of a build up, a better yes. build up than that. Yeah, because it goes straight from 
we're doing this immediately within a week to now you have to wait six months and then after that you got to wait at least a year yeah and and that's the part that that stands out the most to me because i i think it makes sense to to have something to where we can address people who are potential threats particularly to themselves i mean mm-hmm. who is the most likely to be harmed by a gun themselves yeah. Su- suicide yeah. so that that's the part that stands out to me of can we address that aspect but my biggest question with that is we get to sort of at what point are we becoming like minority report where we're predicting crime that hasn't happened yet and you're gonna strip somebody of a constitutional right before they commit a crime like i don't no. i don't know it's, it's, i don't well, it also just makes me worry because of who we target for crime. So are we just going to have police just rolling through my bellow? Like, yeah, you right. might have done something. You might be doing something. So I need this so I can... Well, and that goes back to I need this so I can get that search warrant and get in that house, too. Yeah. Because I think that they're doing something, but I want to get in there so this is the easiest route. I'm going to talk to this judge and be like, I think they're a danger because I think they have weapons well, and something like that. And, and that leads me to another thought of, like, the, the gun argument in general because so many of the times it, it's... You know, it's the upper middle class white people who live in gated communities that are like anti-gun and they're not taking consideration that, you know, in a neighborhood that has a 30 minute response rate, um, that has a high crime rate, they do need guns. Or a one and a half hour response rate in Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that goes to, yeah, like, I mean. But it's typically black and brown communities that, that... are already not getting support for those things and then this yeah you're right could be a tool to be used against them as well which which is scary to think about it is <laughs> yeah and it would be one of those things if i could just, if we could all assume best intentions when these bills are being created but it unfortunately right. isn't and i um, huge potential for abuse well yeah and i would like to chastise some of our legislators for putting mm-hmm. forward things that actually have so many negative consequences <laughs> without fully like thinking betting. about the larger scope of what they are trying to implement. And on some level, that also comes down to the lawyers that help them craft legislation. That's true. Um, lobbyists. And lobbyists. You know. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about sort of a practical application of this in the sense of the person that Bill's named after, Zachary Parrish the third, uh, the law enforcement officer who was killed when a schizophrenic man shot him at his apartment. Not Zachary's apartment, the schizophrenic man's apartment. I want to ask in a practical sense, like, say they had this tool then, and the sheriffs went to the court and told the court they wanted to take the weapons, and then they came in with a search warrant to take the weapons. How do they foresee that going any differently than it did that night? Well, and that's the thing, right? You are trying to predict the actions of someone when they are going to be one negatively viewed and then two threatened because you are coming into somebody's home to take away property when well, you're already saying they're somewhat irrational and you're yeah and so i don't perceive that like how do you change what somebody's going to res- how somebody's going to respond to you showing up at their house you you can't change that i mean i one of the things i heard was a speech by tom sullivan where he gave a beautiful answer to some of this but i mean at the same time it was like that's nice, but that's not exactly how it's going to work. Is he said a soldier came up to him and told him that another friend of his that was a soldier, his wife told me wanted to, she wanted a divorce, and so he was like, I don't know how I'm going to live with myself. So him and his other soldier friends took the, took his weapons, you know, asked them asked him for it, I guess. And they took his weapons away, went through everything with him, and now he's fine and still alive today. 
So, I mean, I get the idea behind it. You're trying to save lives and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of good intentions have ended in bad scenarios. Or at least bad scenarios start out as good intentions sometimes. So, like, so I worry about that. When, what, what's the discretion, again, for the petitioner? Like, anybody can be a petitioner? Uh, any family member, household member, or sheriff. So okay. if you don't live with the person or you aren't related to them or you're not law enforcement, you won't be able to bring a petition forward. Okay. What about and not mental health provider? It didn't specify, but I think there's already a route for mental health providers to warn okay. police. And that that's what, why I asked. Yeah. Because I thought they already have a report. Attorneys have it too. Like if yeah. we suspect that our client is going to hurt somebody, we are and we have a reasonable assumption that this is going to happen, then we need to notify in order to protect that person. Same thing with mental health providers. If they believe that there's a reasonable chance that this person will hurt somebody and they know who they might hurt, then they have to come forward and say something. And at that point, that person is sort of considered a threat and violent. And there's even mental health barriers to receiving weapons too, like purchasing weapons and stuff like that, in the sense that if you have a mental health designation before where you've been maybe hospitalized or something, sometimes that prevents you from being able to purchase. So. Would this have prevented James Holmes from doing this? And I want to answer from each one of you. I mean, I honestly don't know. I don't know the particulars of his mental health status before, like what people saw in him that might have led to it. I know... That's a good lawyer answer. When you think of the Sandy Hook one, that's one that I think that it may not have applied because that guy, you know, got his weapons from somebody else. He stole them. Like, I think it was his mother or something killed her and stole them. That's true. So there was no way to really prevent that one with this. Well, also, and then you're just like, well, what if it, because we're in Colorado, what if it prevented something like Columbine? Well, and then that's where the kids yeah. took the weapons from took the parents. Took the weapons from parents. parents. So, so again, those things aren't necessarily stopping a lot of our mass shootings. Mm-hmm. And even with the case of Holmes, he was living by himself. So there's not a household member mm-hmm. there. Um, he was seeking, he did have a mental health person so that person would have been the only person to report because the sheriff's not gonna necessarily go yeah, there although, yeah although i do think that's uh that's cherry picking at the same time right because yeah, how these many are the cases shootings, we have though yeah but but how many shootings are mass shootings what percentage it, it's very well, minuscule uh, we'll think right i think that's what my problem is right these bills are created in response to, to the, yeah, the, these larger things shooting. when we can make way more practical senses of gun control that aren't targeting these big events and this really seems like something that's targeting the big event it's the death of a of a sheriff's deputy from a mentally ill person and it's a big event that we are now targeting to say this is how we fix this but what we really should be doing is actually looking at the smaller events the stuff that we have large-scale data at and And, that's why i think and i think yeah i think those are the easy ones to politicize but absolutely when i think of the red flag bill and i think of what it could prevent i mean the the majority of those are suicides and that those are always the ones that the nra really good point that the nra members are like they try they want to write off and not even talk about they're like well that's suicide that doesn't count I'm like, but that's the vast majority of people who die from yeah. from these weapons. I'm, that's what I would rather focus I'm on. I'm going to sound like a bit of an asshole on this one, yeah. and I know it. Shocking. Oh, God. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, if someone's set on killing themselves, I mean, if you love them, sure, step in. But where is it the law enforcement or the state's job to step in and stop that person from doing that? 
Like that's it's called freedom. Like I, I think live, there actually are suicide laws, aren't it? It's against the law. Well, to it kill is against the law to try to kill yourself, and I get that. And I, I think those I think laws it's kind of funny, but oh god, did I actually oh. just say that? It is. It is kind of funny. There, there's a law that it's, it's a against the law. Kind of funny, like yeah, <laughs> like it's like what are you gonna do with the person after they kill themselves anyway? But well, that's well, I think it's. I think it depends, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, like if I think of like Doctor Kevorkian. He was he was going he was that's different, yeah. he was helping people yeah. commit suicide who were terminally ill. Mm-hmm. They weren't they were mentally mm-hmm. stable and knew they wanted to die. Mm-hmm. The the people who are killing I mean a gun is a quick mm-hmm. way to kill yourself that you're not necessarily no. able to think things through. Yeah. So I don't necessarily d- disagree mm-hmm. that it is freedom to like euthanasia. Yeah. I think I think that should be a right, but I think the vast majority who choose a gun is probably a more rash decision than just you wanted to die and you've thought about this long and hard. I um, guess it comes down to just watch after your loved ones, like keep an eye out. Well, no, it does come down to mental health and it comes down to access. I mean, there are a number of studies that talk about who chooses which weapons to, uh, you know, go through that act with and you know, the people who are choosing certain methods that are more cries for help and what gives them that option. Also, it goes back to, again, like we said, mental health is a really huge problem that we have across the country with drug use and suicide and everything that runs the whole gambit. And, necessar- and we don't necessarily have enough healthcare providers, period, no. um, let alone enough to address these major issues that we all have facing. And I, I do think the problem is we've made it a gun issue and not an issue of all of the other social factors that we need to actually, quite frankly, just put money into providing for every person in the citizenry. But it's it's cheaper to be proactive anyway. I mean, for, if we were to provide people housing, right, it would save us money because you wouldn't have to provide as much money for emergency care and for ple- policing people living on the streets. To put more money into mental health beforehand is going to save us money in the long run. I mean, yeah. so I do have to ask yeah. you: you are running for office. I am. Um, so, what to you, if you are elected, what are things that you feel like you can be proactive about that address these bigger issues? I I think housing is the probably the biggest one we could do at the city level to be proactive because we the way in which we handled the development particularly in aurora is we're very reactive we just we wait and we see and like oh this person wants to develop cool let them let them do it um and we have no city level like urban planning and i think that that's, that's scary it, it is it's also silly sprawling makes no sense for transportation it makes no sense for really anything but not only that when when the costs are going way up homeless rates go up poverty rates go up crime goes up um so being proactive by doing housing first is is something that can address many of the issues are you talking about like affordable housing or just housing in general for like homeless people or so so something i would like to to use is the community land trust model I think we can essentially buy land and then sell it to community land trusts that can that can provide affordable housing. Um, but also, when you when you think of the two thousand eight like crash, yeah. community land trusts had the lowest amount of foreclosures because they were they allowed people not to pay their mortgage for 
for a while. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. you know, because banks banks don't have to foreclose. Like, yeah. it, like I mean, they do. But they they're do. going to. to them, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not like they're going to go broke if they didn't foreclose on houses immediately. Mm-hmm. And or I think if people miss a payment or two, or yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the um, the people who work who do community land trusts are are able to they can afford to have payments missed but i think overall it'll it'll balance out the the market because so i bought my house two two years ago for like two hundred and fifty thousand. it's now supposedly worth 320 but there's in aurora in aurora Aurora. but but there's really there's that sink in (laughs) the idea of housing being both affordable and a good investment are are counterintuitive. They're right. they're yeah. opposing ideas, so we have to acknowledge the fact that that housing just constantly going up and going up and going up is not actually a good thing, because you're going to have people who are homeless. You're going to have because the only way I could even afford to buy my house is because I I'm fortunate enough to have two parents that um, could co-sign for me. But when I when I look at like my students and one of the one of the big issues we have in in Aurora Public Schools is is lower uh, enrollment. Mm-hmm. People aren't having kids because they can't afford it. Yep. You know, and uh, how many people do you know that thirty percent of their income goes to their house? I don't know anybody that pays that little. Yeah. Um, I know that's supposed to be the ideal. But. Yeah. <laughs> never, never in my life. Nah. But but if you like, if you were able to control the the cost of housing you would give everyone a raise in the city mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and that's money going to, into our local economy um yeah. i think it just makes financial sense and and i think the community land trust model is is uh, a good route to do that speaking of mental of mental health do you want to veer over into Lori sane and vicky marble i don't know what you're talking about god damn it said <laughs> Which one was that? Second Amendment Sanctuary and um, succeeding. Oh yeah. Kind of, but not really. Like, uh, I did want to cover Duran versus Deget a little I bit. I do too. So I think we're past the lo- or both things. I think we covered it really well. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that would, yeah. <laughs> Go anywhere. Probably um, a bad politician. I'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get you to talk about it. No, we find things. that that's a yeah. good thing. In- it really is. <laughs> no, I really appreciate talk, a lot of your answers. Are, they're really great, yeah. Make us a little weary. <laughs> uh, but let's go ahead and move into <laughs> Chrysanza Duran versus Diana DeGette. Speaking of crazy people, Duran's decided to run against Diana DeGette for CD1. I know it's not your district. Salty. But uh, if you know anything about it, please chime in. We love yeah, to hear it. Please start and I'll, I'll yeah. hold off. I, I feel like Duran's kind of seeing herself as like a Ocasio Cortez type character, which I'm going to just say it. She clearly is not. Um, <laughs> she's. What? One's what? a young, up and coming twenty something, and the other one is a oh wait no established politician. Yeah, never, never mind. I swear you're Identical. <laughs> anyway, so I feel like uh, Duran's relying probably on race and youth as an angle for this. I don't really see many or much difference in the policy. Uh, I mean, I don't know what she was thinking honestly. Like, my thought is if she ran for Senate, for U.S. Senate against Cory Gardner. She can run in that race. Yeah, there's a lot of established Democrats that are jumping in that one. I understand it's going to be a tough race. But if you lose the primary or you lose the general, you still save face for another higher position. Whereas, And if you win, you're a senator, so that's fucking dope. On the other hand, if you run against DeGette and you lose, 
you, you probably didn't shot your career in the foot. So exactly. I mean, at that point, like, I think it's a terrible decision in that sense. But I mean, if you come at the queen, you best not miss. Like, Let's go to Brian for his yeah. opinion. <laughs> um, well, you you mentioned that their politics are pretty aligned. Mm-hmm. I I think. Particularly in that race, because that's a pretty blue seat. Yes. If you're going to run, you should be running from the left. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I have no issue. I think good, healthy primaries are good for the party. Um, and in a seat like that, I think there should always be somebody running from the left. If we have a socialist in there, maybe a communist should run. But just, oh, <laughs> but if, it, if it's – no, the point I'm making <laughs> is like – The point I'm making is that – that it, if it's a blue seat, it should be it it should be bluer. Well, it's, like, it's considered like the vanguard of the party. Like it's yeah. a safe seat, so you should be able to push the liberal policies of it, the exactly. party. Exactly, the get needs yeah. to be pushed. The, the communist, for the record, was hyperbole. In case anybody yeah, no, wasn't we're, sure, we're serious. But yeah. Yeah. It's okay, um, man. McCarthy's dead. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna blacklist yeah. you, man. Um, but the point I'm making is, I is I think healthy primaries are good. You should always be running in, in a blue seat and to to push the because you can push the whole party to the left if you if you do that. But no, I think like what what is the point of her running? Yeah. Um, if their issues are very aligned, mm-hmm. um, if it's to like if she has a general genuine issue with with the get. I don't know. She hasn't said it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She keeps saying Diana DeGette's done a great job, but it's time for new leadership. What the fuck does that mean? Well, also, it's like, tell me why I need new leadership if you're yeah. telling me this person's doing a great job. Yeah, exactly. Let's not beat around the bush. I do want to go to a little bit of part about Chrysanta Duran, and I feel like we're going to pick on Chrysanta, but she she chose this fight. Um, so I'm like 99.9% sure she's a thiefer person. I've like seen a bunch of stuff. Do you know about this? Do uh, you know? I do don't. What, do you know what Defer is? Yes, yeah, I do. I would hope you do. I'm teacher, sure right? he does. I, I would to, fucking yeah. hope you do. Like, yeah. Anyway, so she's gotten a lot of money from Defer, and so has her replacement, Alex Valdez, who I essentially think she handpicked, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but it was obvious that Valdez was the party person through. But um, So while she was in there, I found one bill that was interesting do you know of HB 1375? It's the one that calls for school districts to build plans to equitably distribute funds and from mill levies. Is it, That's the one that makes them give mill levy money to charter schools? Yes. Yeah. Bingo. That's so equity. The language sounds beautiful in, in this bill. Like It sounds like, oh, we're making sure everybody's getting the same amount what of year money. Was that? There's no specialty. I don't recall the it, year. It, uh, it was in the last couple of years, I think. Okay. Because um, I think she was speaker when she did it. Uh but the bill itself, at the very last line that I saw, as far as like the quick blurbs about it, it says, um, creates a mill levy equalization fund to provide further support for institutions of charter schools and innovation schools. Those are the ones that are sucking the funding from all the public schools and making it tough because they don't have to follow the same standards and stuff. They don't have to follow the same sort of guidelines in accepting students as regular public schools. When you're also... Every time you have a you have a charter school, you're having new, you know, you have overhead, mm-hmm. and they overall have more top heavy um, money. So, I mean, even if they did have to take as many people, you're still having to pay for things yep. twice. It, mm-hmm. it, you still have to turn the lights on in the building. It, it's inherently breaking down resources. Can I tell you the quote that she went with for it? It says, with this bill, we had to change the focus to be about the kids who may not have been born in the wealthiest zip code or face significant obstacles to succeed. 
I love your little chuckle there. <laughs> well, the, well, the funny thing is, is that's that's always been the the argument is that choice gives opportunities for disadvantaged um, students. But look at the numbers; charter schools are more segregated. Mm-hmm. It's yep. it's black and white, um, literally. <laughs> literally no pun intended and, and they are painted um you know when the arguments made of these are these are schools for disadvantaged black and brown students but overall they're they're it's upper middle class white kids who yeah. typically take advantage of it but also who who has the ability to get their kids to these schools because they don't have transportation most of the time mm-hmm. they don't have buses so it's people who have supportive families and the economic abilities to get their kids to these schools. So Bingo. even if they didn't have the pick the the pick and choose that they do have, they're still inherently picking and choosing. Yeah. No, so, it's so, if you wanted to give kids more advantages, fund the schools where they live, where they can go to yeah. that are usually starts with quality and adequate well, teachers. And I'll, say, and I'll say that's yeah. what this bill sounds like it's supposed to do, but that's not what it's it, not does. What it does. Yeah, see, practical application is that, different that's, than... That's framing. I mean, yeah. people yeah. focus on the family. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, Touche. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so let me ask you then, as an objective third-party person that really has no dog in this fight, <laughs> how do you see somebody coming up with that sort of record coming against an established Democrat in a safe district like this? Like, do you see that as, like, a good thing, bad thing? Like, I mean, I, I don't – I personally don't support people who uh, run on charters and have a history of charters because of the the just – the racial issues, the, the class issues that that creates. Um, Does it have special ed issues? Well, yeah, of course. I mean – what happens every single year? Do you guys know what an October count is? No. So October count is what when we count every student in our school to determine our funding. Mm-hmm. So they always hold back on they always hold back on a certain percentage of our funding until we demonstrate that we have the students we were predicted to have, and that happens in the beginning of October. Okay. Charters do the same thing. What happens every single year after? Uh, and and this isn't true for all charters. I can't say that. But um, what happens every single year after October is um, we have an influx of students in late October who are at the charter schools who no longer are there after they've been able to get the the funding because once they after October count the funding's there and then it doesn't follow them where they go. So particularly the students with special needs because. That's when they'll they'll do their IEP assessments, determine that place students on IEPs. Say you're welcome to stay here, but we can't service your IEP, and they end up going back to the public school. And again, that's not every charter school, but that is you can ask public schools. Yeah, yeah. Go to go to any public school, and you'll they'll be able to tell you a similar story of that influx that happens. So. What are your feelings? We have a number of politicians in the state who are very prominent within the Democratic Party who support charter schools. The most prominent, of course, being our governor. And then, of course, Michael Johnson, who is running for Senate. And a whole slew of them. A lot of, a lot of people like charter schools. Well, well, see, the thing is, the people that support the charter schools support those people, and they have a lot of money. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Defer and the Walton family, like, oh. there's a there's a lot of money to be thrown around. So... Um, 
if you go down the Democratic Party, a lot of them take their money. Mm-hmm. Um, True. So it, it really muddies the water. But the like you have Mike Johnson, who actually sat on the board of DEFER. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> when, one of the DPS board members <clears throat> is like one of the chair people of DEFER or something. Barbara O'Brien, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for me as a teacher who supports public school schools, I I will support Democrats with the exception of Mike Johnston. I was a never <laughs> in the primary for the governor. Yeah, I was yeah. I was anybody but Johnston, and I you know I supported Kerry Kennedy. You know when you had Polis versus Stapleton, <laughs> it, it's an obvious yeah, choice. Yeah. Um, but Mike Johnston, I thought. With you know he he wrote SB ten one ninety one that mm-hmm. that has just been so harmful for public education here in Colorado. I have a hard time supporting someone who's hurt my profession and has hurt students. So mm-hmm. yes, he's fine on some issues, but that that's hard to get past. Yeah, thanks, um, dude. Yeah. No. All right. So I. Would have a, a, I'd have a very, very, very hard time supporting him as a, a senator. So I'm hoping he doesn't emerge from the primary. <laughs> I think you've that, answered my question beautifully. That would yeah. be a, that would be a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, would I swallow it? I mean, look at his opponent. I would probably have to, but <laughs> my, uh, I I would actively support a lot of other people in the primary. No, but, I mean it speaks to like the issue that I think we all have at times with the Democratic Party is it's still controlled by a number of people who have interests that don't necessarily align with us and aren't as progressive as we would like them to be and it puts you in that position where you're like I really don't want to vote for you please lose to somebody <laughs> in the primary yeah. okay I have no other choice but to vote for you yeah I mean I mean what is it divergers law like in, in America we have two parties so after the primary you got to vote for the Democrat um, as tough Unfortunately, as that could be for for me to vote vote I for think Mike Johnson. Twenty sixteen represented that. Really well. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was um, tough. Yeah, yeah, but man, I'm gonna support other people in the primary. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Financially and knocking on doors because, yeah, yeah um, education is so important to me. No, it is the lifeblood of communities and the lifeblood of cities and states. Um, and unfortunately we live in a state that doesn't value it the way that it should. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting a bit long. So, uh, should we wrap up with final yeah, thoughts? Final thoughts. It is, uh, who wants to start? We'll give you the last word if you like, or if you want to oh, go first, yeah, I can go first. The uh, thing that's go first. Been, well, the thing that's been on my mind this week is, um, King supers looking to go on strike. They are, um, Support your local union. Never, ever cross a picket line. Um, you know, they were out with us when we walked out in April. They were out down in Pueblo when Pueblo went on strike. They were out with Denver when they went on strike. They supported teachers teachers and Democrats and the community need to support them. Um, as far as my stuff, let me get my card to make sure I cover yeah, no. everything. Yeah. Spell my, out the website. My website's brianlindstrom.com. It's B-R-Y-A-N. L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M dot com. Facebook is Brian Lindstrom for Aurora City Council. Uh, Twitter at Brian Lindstrom for, again, that's B-R-Y-A-N for Brian. And my email is Brian at Brian Lindstrom dot com. Running in Ward 6 of Aurora. Thanks. Great. Okay, so we have a plethora of Democratic candidates for 2020. 
I have a bone to pick with several of them. Their Spanish translations are shit. So apparently, Camilla Harris has wasted her whole life fighting for the people. That's what it says on her website in Spanish. Miss Harris, get your stuff together because um, people who are native Spanish speakers know better and deserve better than this. Did she say it was poor, though, or something like that? Let's see. Defended poor people or something? Camilla Harris has wasted her whole life defending the values of our of our country. That is what it literally says. Huh. Wasted. That is my thought for the week. <laughs> I don't think that's Google Translate. I think it was just somebody who passed Spanish one. Mm. Oh. On well, the heiress. Speaking of getting wasted. <laughs> um, my fuck you goes out to USD. If you guys don't know, the University of South Dakota, they had a party <laughs> at their law school this year, and they wanted to make it Hawaiian-themed. Apparently, they still didn't know how not to make it racist, but their president said, I really am not happy with the misconduct of our faculty and staff for pointing out and telling our students how to think and dress for this party. Hey, yo, lady, there's a national discussion around cultural appropriation and how people dress up as other races. <laughs> I know you just got the job. But uh, you're the president of a university. I would expect you to be smarter. So, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> My final thought is how bored must the Neville family be to keep recalling people? <laughs> uh, Bridges and Froelich have been recalled, or they're trying to recall them. That's what it is, not yet. But apparently they have a lot of money and they want to try and do this. Uh, I think it's kind of funny that it's Bridges and Froelich starting out in HD3. They fought it out. And, Irony. And then, yeah, like... <laughs> Then they both get appointed to seats, and we'll see how it goes. I tell them to find a hobby, probably. I don't know. Fishing's fun. <laughs> they they already have guns. Well, yeah, they go. Well, I'd say go hunting, but people probably take that the wrong way. <laughs> um, find a hobby, guys. But that's all we have for politically pissed. Thank you for joining us this week, and we really appreciate it. Take it bye. Easy, y'all. Got some great guests coming up. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, guns close doors to the system Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them